Hello, Detroit. Welcome to another episode of Authentically Detroit, broadcasting live from the Audio Wave Network Studios here on Detroit's Lower East Side, powered by the East Side Community Network and sponsored by none other than the Ford Foundation. I'm Donna Givens, and today we are joined by our special guest host, Eric Thomas, who has agreed to co-host in Orlando's absence. Thank you for listening in and supporting our efforts to build a platform for authentic voices, real people on the east side of Detroit. We want you to like and subscribe to our podcast on whatever platform you listen to. Remember, we drop a new EP just about every other Tuesday, although we've had a few growing pains these past two months and missed a couple episodes. We'll be back with you next Monday, October 28th, and back again on November 11th with Orlando Bailey back home from his travels. So, Eric, Eric Thomas, how are you? I'm fantastic. I'm settling into big shoes to feel. I've been catching up on podcasts and all of my spare time just to make sure that I had to live up to this living legend, or- Orlando Bailey. Orlando, so now- yeah. <laughs> well, you're you're a legend in your own right. How was your own weekend? How was your weekend? Uh, it was... I try to be as productive as possible, but sometimes I just go veg out somewhere. You know, you do so much stuff that your body claims you, (laughs) lays you down. So, you know, lay me down this weekend for the most part. Oh, wow. I I was actually, you know, actually working hard on a project that um, I was, was, I'll, I'll talk about that in a future podcast. Working on a project I'm pretty excited about, um, trying to work to help organize some of my peers and community development so we can speak with collective action, and it started today. Oh, good. I, I, you know, Detroit has a lot of organizations, and I'm just really excited to see more synergy. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of people doing a lot of work. Yeah, I mean, synergy is important. Um, we all want to be <clears> special, <throat> but the reality is we are stronger together. That old um, ECN tagline that the DNC stole from us. Um, (laughs) (laughs) We used it first. (laughs) I'm sure someone used it before us, but we really are stronger together. And um, it's kind of like a team thing where you have to learn to play your position. And I'm trying to learn a position that is right for me and also learn how to accept leadership from others, which is sometimes hard when you're a CEO. Yeah, you know, it's... One of our biggest challenges is that everybody, like everybody, wants to make a mark, but we've forgotten is like all of the outcomes affect all of us. Right. <laughs> like if, like if Detroit doesn't succeed, we all sink. <laughs> so our job needs to be focused on making sure that we get this all together before we are start trying to stake claims in the moon. <laughs> Let's get it working first. You are absolutely right, Eric. I completely agree with you. So. I mean, it was sweet to stay this weekend. How did you enjoy it? <laughs> I took myself on a date to my own house, cooked myself some steak and shrimp <laughs> because I'm classy, um, and re- remembered that no one likes me. So it was a, <laughs> it was an eventful sweetest day. Oh, I bet you had a sweetest day uh, situation happening. How was that? Well, you know, sweetest day, we were both busy on Saturday, so we went out yesterday and spent a whole day together having fun watching the Lions lose. And then... <laughs> so you just watched the Lions game. I don't... Well, you know, listen. <laughs> And we could we could lose together. Didn't feel so bad. Not alone. <laughs> real love. Because real love is we can lose together. It's like a Luther Vandross lyric. Uh, is it? <laughs> so, Eric. Yes. Can you tell us why you hate Detroit oh, and geez. why this sentiment is so real for the people who really love our city? <laughs> like, you know, I hate Detroit. That just feels so real. It, you know, I, I don't think anybody who's actually a Detroiter doesn't have a love-hate relationship with Detroit. Because the... the I stand by the fact that the best thing about Detroit are the people. I think the people are the funniest, most interesting, most entertaining, most resilient people almost anywhere in the world. 
But the systems, the structures, the infrastructure in Detroit fights the progress like quicksand. The harder you fight it, the more it tries to destroy you. Oh, you want to start a business? Well, well let's see you get a, a permit. You know, like, let's see you open a building. Let's see you do anything. Let's see you call the police, get trash picked up. You know, like all of this like little basic stuff becomes so much more complicated just by the weight and the scale of the infrastructural degradation. And so it does become a heavy lift. But at the same time, it's hard not to know a city by the people in it and the people that you know in it. And right. so you you love that part. But good God, it's hard. <laughs> it's hard to just do things and push things forward sometimes. Well, you know, you're you're younger than me, so um, people my age, we have a lot of nostalgia for Detroit back in the day. Mm-hmm. You know, back in the day when everything worked really well. <laughs> I missed it. I, <laughs> you know, I, I think I think I think I missed it too. But we have not. You know, that's what nostalgia is. Nostalgia makes you believe everything was really functional at some time in the past, and now it's. Um, all things have gone just downhill and, and everything that you see broken used to work. And I hear a lot of people engaging those conversations back when our schools were good, you know, when you were a child, before this, all the takeovers. and Which is wild to me because when I, like, I went to school before the takeovers and the school was still whack, right? Like, I, I wasn't allowed to take my books home in the fifth grade, in the fourth grade because uh, they thought we would lose them and we didn't have enough books to go around and all this other kind of stuff. So, like... My school was terrible. Like the the with the, the EA, like that didn't that didn't. It made terrible worse. It made terrible worse, but it was already terrible, right? It, it's like you take something bad and you figure out how to suck all of the value out of whatever isn't working, so that it isn't working at all. Yeah. At least at the high school level, EAA schools um, were almost criminally bad. No, terribly bad. I, I've talked to students from, who went to those schools where they didn't after they left. You know, there were no teachers, right? So the kids were being watched by security guards. And that was within the last five years. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, it's it's horrible stuff. But what we... The problem that I have with nostalgia is that, like, that, that collective amnesia yeah. that people get. Exactly. It's, to, to me, that's always good. It's like when people tell you, like, music, like... We only had good rap music back in the day. I'm like, that's not true. Like, you had Millie, Van- Millie Vanilli and Flavor Flav. Like, <laughs> you know, like, it's not, you can't just pretend that things were, how, were, like, the only rapper that existed at the time was Biggie Smalls, Tupac, and Nas. And then we were the ones that ruined hip hop. Well, you know, <laughs> and, 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 and I, I find that really offensive. Actually, you know, years ago, I worked at Vanguard Community Development Corporation. Right. And we had a play that um, one of our staff people, Dorothea Sharon, wrote based on the conversations we used to have in our office called I Want My Music Now. And it was all about how each generation believes that their music yeah. is the only good music and Ever. how each generation <laughs> believes their music is somehow innocent, right? right? So, like, all of these nasty lyrics, but, you know, don't don't listen to Prince. Um, don't right. listen to right. any of these other people. We don't listen to the on. Ohio players. So this idea that somehow goodness ended when we stopped being you know, teenagers, or we stopped being young. In reality, the reason that music was best to you is because you were living at a different time when music yeah. affected you differently. 
And like hormones um, is why you think your music is better. Well, you know, it's a coming of age experience. And so why are we trying to deny young people their own coming of age experience by forcing them to accept the truth that ours was the only good music? And I was like, as a child, I used to hate that because, you know, I grew up in Detroit. Motown was real. And my dad only liked jazz music. Of course he did. And so um, he said it was, well, it's the only real music, right? And so he denied Michael Jackson, The Temptation. He couldn't stand. He had all of this. And the interesting thing is what I didn't know until I became an adult was my father was actually a doctor to the Temptations. And (laughs) he was a doctor who worked with a lot of Motown artists. He sometimes hung out with them. (laughs) <laughs> but he would come home and trash their music to us and tell us the only good musician was Count Basie and Duke Ellington. Who were great. And were great. But <laughs> so my response was, I can't stand Duke Ellington. I won't listen to that. It was like this generational warfare. And it's still happening now. Yeah. And it's more than about the music. It really is about valuing and um, accepting the worth of young people today and, you know, not acting as though everything was together when we were young. Detroit's murder rate is pretty much what it was when yeah. I was a child. It's just bad. It's been bad. When I was a kid, <laughs> we used to call public transportation the Iron Pimp, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, so, <laughs> you know, and I remember my mother getting into it because sometimes our garbage did not get collected from our alleys, which, by the way, garbage collection from an alley is very, very unsanitary and nasty. We used to have to sometimes go out and clean the alleys. Now you just pull the little bin up in front of your house, and when they pick it, you have to pull it back. Right. Back in the day, you were in an alley. You had, you know, garbage was spilling over sometimes, rats in the alley. It was not a clean, nice um, experience, Not at least not from what I remember as a child. So See, what you need is those rose-colored glasses. It was actually fairies that floated down and cleaned up Detroit every day until rap started. <laughs> right. And these young people, you know, had bad attitudes. And it's really funny because I always wonder who raised all these bad kids, you know. Since we um, had it all together and everybody loved each other and looked out for each other. And there's some people who really question that. This can spawn out of nowhere. I guess I have no idea where these kids came from, not from me, because um, in my generation, we had it all together. Yeah, of course. That's, yeah. that's what it is. It's, it's, it's everybody else's fault but mine. That's, but, <laughs> you know, I think the challenge with that, beyond being um, kind of ridiculous and beyond the fact that that is the exact same ideology that creates Make America Great Again, same nostalgia, exact. Beyond that, it also keeps us from being solution-focused. If the arc oh, of the yeah. universe bends towards justice, we have not gotten there yet. And you can't look back for the solutions for future problems. And I think that the nostalgia sort of paralyzes us and stops us from really being able to embrace change and progress. I agree. I think there's this thing where we look at what is and don't think about why. I've been arguing with people about this quite a bit. Uh, so I was listening to one of the podcasts you are talking about being on the lodge with it. And it is a thing that bothers me because I get in these arguments and people are like, well, why is the murder rate so so high with, you know, young black youths and all this kind of stuff? That's a great question. But did you ever stop to try to answer it? Right. When people people, people use why is this happening as a way to end the conversation right. instead of a way to uncover systemic challenges and threats. You know? Well, if we wanted to really go back and look, we need to probably go all the way back to the Middle Passage. Oh, yeah. Go all the way back to a plantation and all of the trauma that our people experienced um, in in bondage, tortured, oppressed, raped, 
brutalized, families torn apart. All of these things are happening to our people. They have to get up and go to work every day or they'll be killed. Children have to work. Doesn't really, nobody, time doesn't stand still. And there's absolutely no compassion. I don't know. Did you see Watchmen? On Sunday? Oh, I didn't, but I saw they did with the uh, riots in Tulsa. Yeah, well, that, that, that's not a riot. It's an uprising. That's a massacre. Yeah. It was yeah. an absolute massacre. Right, right, it right. was a massacre. Planes were bombing people. Black people were being shot down like dogs. That's not a riot. The idea that True. they call this a riot, race riot implies that there is some back and forth. <laughs> right, that there was an equivalent to, exchange. Right. It was the a massacre of black people who had made something. And the next generation of those people... And I think that's probably what Watchmen is going to end up being about, is what happens to a people that are massacred like that? What happens when your people are hanging like strange fruit from trees and when women cannot protect their bodies? There's trauma. And that trauma ends up becoming part of your psyche, the way that you interact with other people, how you treat other people, how you regard yourself. And then traumatized then you have a kid and you pass on that trauma you pass trauma down to your down kids, generationally man. until an intervention is done that trauma is going to keep on getting recycled and so dr joy degree wrote a, a, an excellent book about it i don't know if you've seen her book or any of her um, videos post-traumatic slavery syndrome mm. but she makes it plain she's a psychologist and she is brilliant she makes it plain exactly what's happening so if you're going to talk about murder, let's talk about trauma. Let's talk, let, let, when, when you talk about people, you have to talk about their environment. You have to talk about the conditions. If you look at a situation where the condition that play people live in is artificially manufactured, right? right. Redlining, discrimination, uh, uh, lack of funds, uh, disinvestment in communities, uh, tying funding to property values around schools but then low artificially lowering the value of the properties around the schools taking out job opportunities so you can't raise the value i mean there are things and then you have a chain of events that create um a degradation of opportunity and then you blame the people for existing in a place that you put them yeah <laughs> there's a book called race for profit oh yeah if you don't read any other book it is if you read the color of law race for profit takes the color of law and puts it on steroids. I'm telling you, I, I'm trying to remember the name of the author, but she is a brilliant young woman. This book came out this month. It's October 1st, and I had pre-ordered it because I saw something about it online. But what she talks about is the fact that black people were not allowed to purchase homes. Right. And then when the FHA decided to allow us to purchase homes, they did it in a manner that really discriminated in a whole nother way because the homes we were allowed to purchase, fair housing still was not being enforced. We were not allowed to move to the suburbs, right? right. So we had to live inside the city of Detroit and or in cities, I should say, in urban areas because um, the Nixon administration inherited this fair housing bill. And so they wanted us to stay. They didn't want to threaten suburban um, attitudes around racism, um, allowing for Negro invasions. They wanted people to be able to choose. So what they right, like did Cobo. was, well, but it's, <laughs> but it's it's so much bigger than COBOL, right? So what they did was they created these mortgage programs that they targeted women on welfare and sold mortgages to women on welfare to purchase homes that were in degraded condition that never should have passed any kind of inspection. And they took out a loan the woman or the, primarily women would purchase this home with outworking systems, maybe with the floor eroded and um, sometimes with fire damage to the home that had never been checked. And she could not afford to maintain or improve that home. 
And then also she could not afford the mortgage. So she would lose this home that was way overpriced. And then they sell somebody else another mortgage. And the selling of mortgages was not linked to risk because FHA guaranteed all of these loans. So as long as you took out a loan, the, the FHA would guarantee it. Um, people were prosecuted in the 1970s because they were um, actually not doing the basic inspections in the homes. They were acting in collusion with each other and got very, very rich. I mean, it's just like, um, you know, Wall Street got in trouble for, you know, the ghetto loans and well, all that kind of stuff. Well, is it, there, is it, there's a legacy. 30 years later, <laughs> exact same the exact practice. same practice. There, there is a legacy of specifically targeting an individual group and then blaming them for their outcomes as if they're not being targeted. Yeah. If I, the one word that drives me crazy, one one term, is victim mentality. Whenever somebody says victim mentality, it drives me nuts because, like, you know who has victim mentality? Victims. <laughs> well, you know who else has? You know who else has a victim mentality? Victimizers. You oh, know, yeah. you give me a good victimizer. And we're going to talk about a gaslighters. Turn it around. <laughs> Donald Trump says nobody is treated worse than me as president, while he Ever. treats everybody like crap. Right? <laughs> no. Like, can we just talk about the fact that two of our presidents were shot, <laughs> and he For says no one has treated anyone worse than him. Can you? And two or three of them were literally shot. Can the we just talk about the fact <laughs> that this man? had birtherism, was a, a, a pr promoter of birtherism, harassed President Obama his entire presidency around birtherism, and yet he considers himself harassed. I just... And so... They, like, they shot JFK in right. the head. Right, but you know what? He <laughs> like, who was more harassed get, than being shot in the head? I agree with you, but what I'm saying is if and you say Donald Trump didn't shoot him, what Donald Trump did do... It's birtherism. He harassed him. He, he harassed, harassed him. him. He literally did the thing that he is complaining is being done to him, although there are facts on the other side. So let's get into the news today. Uh, we oh try to do fresh off the press, and we have a few news stories that are hot. This is a hot news day, isn't it, Eric? It's a hot news day. Ooh, burning hot. So this is our um, commentary on news items relevant to the city of Detroit. If you and our listening audience have a news item you would like to, us to cover, you can send them to AuthenticallyDetroit.com or hit us up on our socials at Authentically Detroit. So you can just post something on Facebook or on Twitter and let us know what you want us to cover. But what should we be talking about today, Eric? Okay, so just hot off the presses, right? We have the Duggan administration admonished for preferential treatment of the Make Your Date program. But but here's where it gets interesting, right? It says, Detroit Office of the Inspector General finds Make Your Day program received preferential treatment from Mayor Duggan, but there was no abuse of power. But then they go and say that Alexis Wiley, Duggan's chief of staff, abused her authority by twice ordering city staff to delete their emails. Somehow, Duggan is so interesting to me. Somehow he has sidestepped all of this. No, he has. And if you read the whole article, now she may have committed a crime. Yes. Right. Right. Because right. it's literally criminal to erase public records like that. For sure. And to lead that. And she did it twice. She did. But and it, she it got two other people. Yeah. But you know what? Even <laughs> if it's not your idea, if you break a law because your boss asked you to, that you're Trump breaking stuff. a law. So, Trump, Trump people just fall like flies. But, like they but, just always take the fall. But you see, <laughs> also, when. That if you read further into the article, the whole Sister Friends program, it was more than just him giving them money, and he did that. But there's also the whole way that he 
allowed, um, first of all, the contracting process was ridiculous because it looks like the um, the staff at Make Your Date were not providing outcomes, were not providing the data, and were not in good communication. And when they got mad, they went to the mayor. And then the Sister Friends program, which was the Detroit Health Department program that predated Make Your Date, um, that when, when um, they were told they had to prioritize getting clients from Make Your Date over serving the clients through their program. And so when they got in trouble, they would um, got into a lot of trouble when they tried to prioritize programs they were paid to implement and felt like they were being pressured specifically by the mayor on this program. And the final thing I'm going to say is that there is a bid process. The city is supposed to un- oh, take things through a bid process. Oh, yeah. And the bid process was not utilized. So As a person who's bidded for the city, it is a process. It is. <laughs> it's, it's a process because that is the requirement when you're using governmental funds. And so I think that, you know, the Office of Inspector General um, recommended three staff people be um, held accountable or, you know, punished, whatever that means. But the attorney general has to look at this same information and decide whether laws were broken. So I hope for Alexis Wiley that she did not break a law in performing her job. I, I do, too. I mean, but the Sonia Hassan, wasn't that the lady that Duggan got in trouble for? Yes. <laughs> yes. Lordy. Yes. You know, it's, it's, one of those, it's one of those things where you just, you look at it on its face, and it's all so blatant and absurd. Yeah. <laughs> and 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 that's why it's weird when you're like so, so like so so you've got Sonia Hassan who is clearly in some media trouble and you've got Alexis who's clearly in some possible legal trouble and you've got Duggan who they're just like well he was improper but he's okay I, it, that that to me always has been the most stressful part uh, I I was reading an article about um Donald Trump and I'm I'm not gonna necessarily call Doug and Donald Trump other than in this particular uh, strategy. Someone said that Trump never tells you to do anything; mm-hmm. he just strongly implies it. Oh. And and it, and it's that type of thing. He'll never say do the thing. Well, I mean, but, but you know what you have to do. But that's that what is, it seems like. <laughs> but that is exactly what people do, right? That's how lieutenants are deployed. That, that's a, that's that's what you do, and I think that people have to still reconcile their own conscience and decide what to do. Now, sometimes people get selected for jobs because um, they have proven their loyalty, and um, I think that you still have to, at the same, at the end of every day, be accountable for all of your actions. Um, abuse of power is always wrong. Mm-hmm. Whoever is abusing it, I hope that these things are not true, but the allegations are pretty shocking. They're not. They're and not good. Uh, I don't think this is over. This is just the Office of Inspector General. The Attorney General now has to come back. Now, some people think the Attorney General has come back and said there were no laws broken, but really what the Attorney General said was that the nonprofit law was not violated. Yeah. That's a very specific review. The other reviews are ongoing. Yeah. Politically speaking, this may not grow legs. Um, Detroit has had a lot of scandal. I'm not hoping for (laughs) another scandal. Um, I believe in transparency in government. And so if this does nothing else, then remind the city administration that they must be transparent and play by the rules. Let that be the the thing that happens. Um, (laughs) Non-transparent government is not good for all of us. And, you know, I say this at a time where, you know, speaking out about things like this is scary. Mm Mm-hmm. If I say, here's what I believe, it's wrong to break the law in the city of Detroit. I should not fear a consequence. 
that I'm a troublemaker or that I cannot be trusted. And I think that that's the way Detroit is kind of governed. If you look on Facebook, Facebook is pretty quiet about this, isn't it? Facebook is pretty quiet about this. You know, as a as a, a troublemaker, <laughs> and that's, as, as somebody who's been called a troublemaker, I... I'm I'm so tired of being introduced as controversial. I don't know what to do with myself. When literally I'm just, I'll say something like women shouldn't be mistreated in the workplace. They'll be like Eric's so controversial. I'll say something like the government should not sidestep the laws. I'm like that's so controversial. Eric, <laughs> Eric, I'm not going to let you get away with saying you don't like being controversial. I don't own it. I don't wear it. But the thing is, like, I'm literally not trying to be controversial. Like for for Sometimes instance, Sometimes you are. I'm not. I believe things. See, I think people people are so used to not vocalizing things that they believe that people who vocalize what they believe are now seen as controversial. But the way your mind works is a controversial mind. Your mind will see things through a different lens True. and throw it out at people and be unafraid. And that's good. Own yeah. it. That's that's but, that's your, that's who you are. But that's just my identity. If if my identity can be controversial, for instance, this particular story, and I haven't I haven't made a big thing about the story yet because at, at honestly. I don't think Detroit wants that smoke. I don't think anybody cares. And that's the worst part about it. I'm I'm at I'm at apathy point with this where I think I think Dougie would have to push somebody out of a 30-story window for somebody to say something well, about it. I, I, <laughs> somebody said something. Hats off to Kat Stafford for being a reporter who's unafraid to speak truth to power. I like Here's it. what I, I believe. I respect Kat Stafford. In a functioning democracy, you always have to speak truth. In a functioning democracy, silencing dissent it creates absolute power, and absolute power is uh, is problematic. So I don't have to dislike somebody in power to want them to be accountable to the democratically elected, the people who elected them into that position. Um, we have so much money running through this system and so many systems that are broken, as you noted. Um, every dollar that is spent, misspent, misappropriated is a dollar that could have been spent on something else. And that's where good government and citizen oversight comes into play and is not meant to be an attack. But if people look at citizen oversight as an attack on their ability to lead, then I have to question that. You know, people say if you if you look at accountability as an attack, right, then you need to be held accountable. You you can't (laughs) say that you support democracy and not support free speech. Moving on, um, I have a news item. 25,000 people packed um, Bernie Sanders' New York rally. That's what people are saying, um, that there were 25,000 people there. Now, I've read there were 35,000 people. I've read it on Twitter. I find some news articles, by the way. But there's not a lot of recognition that Bernie Sanders is drawing this type of crowd in New York City with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. He's doing it. I mean, it, it, Bernie Sanders definitely has a draw. I think it's her in New York. I think that's her crowd. You know, she's got she's got such an incredible draw, such an incredible online presence, such a like she has scale that's beyond her political station. You know, well, it, and and not that Bernie Sanders isn't massively popular, right? But it, I feel like that audience is her audience. Well, I think it's both. I think Together. that you got to give him credit. Yeah, Bernie Sanders has built. A very strong base of support. What do they say? Not we, us. People who like Joe Biden might like Joe Biden and might jo- vote for somebody else. They're not in love with Joe Biden. I mean, nobody in love with Joe. Okay. The Democrat, the Democratic establishment always picks the person that's the most lukewarm. Right. <laughs> people who people, um, a lot of people really like Elizabeth Warren, and some people love him. 
But some people who like Elizabeth Warren, and I love her, but some people who like Elizabeth Warren are persuadable to vote for some of these other folks. People who like Bernie Sanders love Bernie Sanders. And I think that the other thing is that there's this perception, and I think it's probably true, that the media has done everything it can to ignore him. As if we're not talking about him. Every time. So you can have a story that will um, note that Donald Trump, and I don't believe all of these polls, would beat Biden and Elizabeth Warren in Iowa. But they don't mention the fact that Bernie Sanders would beat Trump in Iowa. Um, They don't mention his relevancy. There was just an article that came out. I think it was NBC did an article pointing out that um, Bernie Sanders is weak after his heart attack, and he's weak this year. And this is the day after he draws between (laughs) 25,000 and 35,000 people to a rally. So I say this not as a supporter of Bernie Sanders because I support Elizabeth Warren, Um, But as somebody who believes that truth is always the right thing, let's not fudge the numbers and let's not minimize the man. Let the best candidate win based on a fair and even press. I mean, there's clearly a few people that they're going out of their way to pretend like don't exist. Right. They're really trying to make uh, Andrew Yang a thing that doesn't exist. Right. And Andrew Yang absolutely exists. Like he definitely exists. He definitely has a, 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 a large well of support. Um, he's good and savvy at the internet because he's an internet billionaire, right? Like Andrew Andrew Yang, um, no matter how much money he raises, he will not. They won't put him on a title card. They won't. Put him on, well, yeah, they and, don't give him any, But they will. They will credibility. put Amy Klobuchar, yeah, who has the charisma of a goldfish. <laughs> On every on the front page of a paper, wow, she really socked it to Elizabeth Warren. First of all, this is a woman who has a horrible reputation for how she treats her campaign staff. (laughs) Terrible reputation for how she treats people. But I read somebody say it doesn't really matter because most of us won't work for her. As if how she treats people is not a reflection of her character. Yeah. And that's really crazy to me. Like the, the way she feels, the people who she sees as beneath her. Right. It's not a reflection of how she <laughs> right. governs a nation. Right. <laughs> like, exactly. It's ridiculous. I mean, but then but then you'll see somebody like uh, Tulsi Gabbard, who is like just like a shadow Republican. Um, right. <laughs> she's like solidly a Republican. Everybody's trying to act like she's not. Um, you, you, you beautiful know, gowns, though. Uh, okay. Beautiful, beautiful <laughs> gowns. <laughs> Here's the thing. She be fresh. That woman is so well dressed. I'm never trying to be that man like that man that's like diminishing a woman's credibility and things to her wardrobe. But come on, the woman is well dressed best dressed candidate we've ever had. Right? Like I said, beautiful gowns. Beautiful gowns. Taylor Swift. Beautiful gowns. Right. <laughs> it's it's it is incredible. But like but They've been trying to suppress Bernie Sanders for a long time. And I, I like I refer to I- Elizabeth Warren as Bernie Sanders with a plan. Right? Like I think I think Elizabeth Warren is everything that Bernie Sanders has but reasonably. Right. <laughs> with, with, some, with some demeanor and some calm. Bernie Sanders every que- answer to every question is to be louder. And like that is not the answer. Well, that's exactly That's exactly why I love her, but you have to give Bernie Sanders credit for this. Sure, I was a Bernie we I was a Bernie not, supporter first time I was around. too. You we, we would not be talking about a $15 minimum wage without him. We would not be talking about Medicare for all the universal health care without him. We would not be talking True. about free college without him. Bernie Sanders put some things out in the 
political dialogue and people talked about free stuff and Santa Claus. And right now those things are more or less mainstream in the Democratic Party. And so for those of us who would prefer a different president, I think it's ridiculous to somehow just try to make him irrelevant or make him part of the problem as if Bernie Sanders cost Hillary Clinton the election last time. <laughs> Hillary Clinton caused Hillary Clinton the election last well, time. You know, everybody but her is the Russians. Is it, it's, it's the it's Russians. Everybody is, it's Comey. <laughs> it's not her. And I'm not saying that to minimize all of those other things, but at the end of the day, you are the candidate. Barack Obama ran as a black man who's accused of being a Muslim, and he won. His name His is name. Barack Hussein Obama. <laughs> right. And so you got to give it up to the candidate. You're running for the president of the United States. You do not earn your way into that. This is something that you have to win because you inspire belief and vision in people. Uh, Hillary still believed that's her seat. And the, and the wildest thing about it is that it's always a charismatic, like, fringe candidate. Say what you want about my favorite uh, drunk auntie, Marianne Williamson. Uh, and that is my favorite person in the world. She made the reparations conversation a real conversation for a hot minute until they got rid of her and all of a sudden nobody mentioned reparations ever again. But while Marianne Williamson was on the stage, there were real conversations about oh, reparations. She did not. She never seemed presidential to me, but I did no. want to hang out with her. <laughs> Come on. She was she that that was not her stage. I think but, that there's but whenever, an opportunity for her to have a dialogue and everybody who has a political dialogue does not have to be running for president. Yeah, she be president. You why why can't you just have that political dialogue and figure out a way for us to popularize some ideas? The idea that every brilliant person should be a politician is crazy to me also. True. Um, we need some inspirational leaders. Yeah. Um, okay, let's talk about um let's get back to the news. Um you have another news story? Oh yes. My favorite news story. So it founder brewing uh founder brewing has been going through some trouble with some race related uh challenges they there was a lot of uh racial dialogue going on in the in in the in the brewery brewery and so this article just came out that says founder's brewing manager claims he didn't know his black employee was black now if you'd see the picture of the person he's very african american like you know beard brown skin you know black and the exchange the dialogue that was recorded during it looks like the deposition it was so good that it looks like the even the lawyer began to lose patience with the manager and i'm i'm just gonna read a little bit of the excerpt because it's so funny mm -hmm. um so evan's evan's attorney's name is jack uh shoals shoals when did you first meet tracy evans uh, 2011. Dominique Ryan is the manager. So Ryan, 2011, we had mutual friends before working there. So first of all, he already knew him before he worked at the establishment. So he knew he was a person who was black. But let's keep it going. I'm going to skip a little bit down. He says, are you aware that Tracy is black? Ryan responds, what do you mean by that? Schultz says, are you aware Tracy is African-American? Ryan says, I'm not aware of his lineage, so I can't answer that. Schultz, all right, are you aware that Tracy is a man of color? Ryan, what do you mean by that? Schultz, no. Do you know? You don't know what it means for a white person or a black person. Ryan, I'm asking for clarification. Schultz, now starting to lose his, his temperament, you don't know any. I can promise you that we'll keep a record of it. Someone's skin color, like a white, like he's losing his like composition. So then all of a sudden he says, are you able to identify individuals by their skin tone? Ryan responds, what do you mean identify? 
we keep going further down, and in this conversation, he goes, "What do you mean he has a different skin color?" He says it's darker, and Schultz says, "And that means." The attorney then says, objection, that's a vague question. You keep going through this conversation, and so he says, uh, I don't know Tracy's lineage, so I can't speculate on whether or not he's from Africa. Schultz says, what do you mean lineage from Africa? Ryan says, no, I mean, like, I don't know his DNA. Like, he's doing everything in his life. That's emblematic of something that is so real, though, because so many white people will do so much to deny racism And many of them say they're colorblind. I don't see race, you know, and colorblind allows you to be racist without having any evidence, because since I can't see your race, you can't hold me accountable for those things I do to you because of your race. Because I I wasn't paying attention to you. Um, Nixon was actually, you know, reading this book, Race for Profit. Um, The author speaks um, significantly to the role that Richard Nixon plays in promoting a colorblind political strategy of benign neglect. Since I'm not going to look at race, I will use other things as a proxy for race so that I never have to be accountable for my racism. (laughs) Right, like marijuana. Right, well, there's so many things. Um, You know, I mean, test scores are a proxy for race. Mm. We know, everybody Mm. knows that black kids are not going to score the same as white kids on average on standardized tests. Everybody knows tests aren't racially biased. Mm -hmm. And yet we use test scores as a proxy for race because when we decide we're going to send some schools money and privilege certain kids, it's not because they're white. It's because they scored high. Mm -hmm. And their test scores have been disproven as being correlated to future achievement. And yet at the same time, we keep on using that. We use geography geography as a proxy for race. We use Um, credit scores as a proxy Mm -hmm. for race. If you are living in the inner city and you don't make a certain amount of money, you don't have good credit, I don't need to look at your credit score to know it's probably not going to be too high because credit scores are correlated to higher incomes and access to finance and also awareness. And so um, credit scores are proxy for race. I can deny you access to loans and never even know what color you are, but I know where you grew up. I know your zip code, and I also know that you are a black person. So we need to hold people together accountable, not just for the intent, but for the outcome of their actions. If the outcome of this strategy, if the outcome of this criterion is, I don't have a job, I can't get into this school, I can't get a loan, quit telling me that you're colorblind. I see you. I mean, I, I, I say this all the time. Color, color blindness is violence. It's this idea that I can diminish your entire identity to make myself comfortable so I don't have to deal with our differences. Because in America, the, like the, the myth in, the, in the, the, the deeply damaging propaganda of the melting pot has made people believe that differences are bad. Inherently, things that are different are bad. Difference so, from white normative, white heterosexual normative culture are bad. For sure. But the, I mean, even this idea, we say this all the time, it's like, oh, I don't see your differences. But the differences are the things that are the dope parts. Like, that's right. the part exactly. that makes us different. Like, it makes us unique and it makes us special. Um, I always, like, one of my favorite things I like to tell people is like, different, like, differences are dope. Like, it's, like, individual culture creates amazing things. You get tacos and you get fried rice and you get sushi and you get you know you get all different you get jambalaya because of the difference so i i had (laughs) this i had a white woman um she was irish she worked for me 
And she told me she didn't see race. But she was always walking around bragging about her Irish heritage and, you know, on St. Patrick's Day, all the leprechauns and all the green and everything. I said, well, I don't see your leprechauns either. So um, you don't see my race. I don't see your ethnicity. Quit talking about it. And, <laughs> you know, she was offended. Um, going back, back to colorblindness, there was a black student at Michigan State who found a toilet paper noose hung on her door. Well, of course. And her, her, the <laughs> Michigan State University said it was a prank. No, a non-racially there was motivated. No, it was not. Be, well, first of all, there, there was. So they don't see racism because they said, right. oh, they, they were just having fun as if racist <laughs> pranks are not fun to racist people. Right. <laughs> and without doing any investigation, they just concluded, you know what? This has no merit. Um it's terrible. It's in the Lansing State Journal. Mark Johnson wrote it. Check it out. It's a terrible story um, of, of a student away from home and having to deal not only with racism, but with an indifferent administration that really doesn't care. <laughs> so, but I want to talk to you about well, something else today. Probably because I didn't today. see the race. Is what um, it was. You and I had a great <laughs> conversation um, a couple weeks ago online um, about Amber Geiger. <laughs> <laughs> Who was sentenced to 10 years in prison for the murder of her neighbor, Bolton Jean, a man she claimed to kill by accident. Following the senseless murder of this man who was eating ice cream in his own home, (laughs) she barely administered first aid. She was texting. In self-defense, she claimed he was a menace charging towards her (laughs) and then claimed she wished he had murdered her instead. (laughs) Me too. As if he was a murderous threat and she regretted (laughs) acting in self-defense. And this is a woman with a racist or downright questionable social media post. Yes, indeed. A track record of questionable behavior on the police force who clearly violated procedures in shooting this man and in his aftermath. Yes, she's the victim. The judge hugged her and gave her a Bible, offering her salvation. God forgives you, baby. Okay. <laughs> offering her absolution. <laughs> absolution. God forgives you. How do you know God forgives her? I mean, have you asked? What do you know is a high court? <laughs> the actual victim's brother hugged her and told her he wished she didn't have to go to prison. They tripping. And the father, his father, hoped they could be friends could be one friends day. Eventually. And all this forgiveness was heralded as wonderful evidence of faith and grace. These black folks are so good at forgiving. And it just, it really looks to me <laughs> as though forgiveness can sometimes be a tool of oppression. Sure can. Okay. This, this idea that if we are just, the, the real problem with these blacks is that we're just not good enough. And if we just get gooder, <laughs> if we get more gooder, then eventually we will be accepted. And in in this, it's, it don't work. There is no amount of gooder you can be after you get killed. I, I need to set a scene for everybody in the universe because I, I keep going through this and I think people need to understand how absurd it is that she shot this man. So, part one. She's walking in to her home. Right, walking up to her door. She's texting on her phone. Uh, she's tired. That's her story. I was so sleepy that I didn't know where I was. First, she noticed her door, her door, quote unquote, was open. So she looks at her door. Now, there's a couple things that happen when you get to your house, and you cannot tell me this is not true. The first thing you see, even when you're tired, is the color palette of your home, right? So somehow she didn't notice the color palette of their home was different or the arrangement was different. Somehow she saw all the way to him with nothing in between it. Then she didn't notice the smell of her home. Because everybody I know has an individual smell to their house. You know the aroma of your home. She is a grown woman. She lived by herself. It wasn't like like her like her 
friend were there. She was sexting a guy, so her boyfriend wasn't home, right? She was at home by herself. There was a whole different room, and she looked at guys, sees a guy eating ice cream. She had many options that weren't shoot. Option one, step one step back out of door, right? That was the first option she could have taken. Step two, called the police, of which she was, which for her is a walkie-talkie, right? Like, she could have done so many things. Her only solution was to see a man eating ice cream in a house that he was away from her, so he couldn't have been a threat because she could have literally ran away and called more authorities and talked the man down, was to shoot the ice cream eating guy while entering and not realize what she was doing until she called her people slash texted the guy she was sexting and said, I think I messed up, then was texting him through the time when the paramedics were on the way. But, you know, like, I don't believe any part of that story. <laughs> it it's make so sense. preposterous. Here's it's what so I believe. I believe she knew where she was. He lived just below her. He may have made some noise she didn't like or done something she didn't like in the parking lot. And I believe she went there to confront him. I'm going to tell you why. Because when he was shot, he was either on his back or on his knees. He didn't. She did not kill him from a position where he could be a threat. Why? How did he get from his sofa to on his back and on his knees other than she had a gun and she forced him there? And I believe Becky got upset. Becky didn't have to call the police. Becky was the police, and she was enforcing something with this man, and it went wrong, and she ended up using too much force, and this man is dead. Oh, no, what do I do? And so she was just trying to figure out how to work her way out of trouble. I don't Mm -hmm. believe anything about that story. And here's my problem is that as preposterous as that story is, the woman lied on the stand. She lied before getting to the stand. Mm -hmm. She used her tears to try to invoke white tears and all that white privilege. The white women get to cry and make it matter i have never had that privilege in the same way and so I there's sure a certain it. level of resentment and you know he didn't have that privilege right he, sure he didn't have a, he, he didn't get to cry he just had to die and then she got she tried to frame him as a threat which was insulting to the whole darn thing and yet nobody is willing to even begin to question her story or to evaluate something else so she comes off as this innocent person not that she didn't have not that she wasn't sharing and liking tweets that basically said, you guys lucky that I don't just go kill one of you right now. I mean, I mean, once again, this was not some small, defenseless, young white woman strolling up through the inner city who ended up in a bad situation. This was a trained marksman and a police officer who has been trained to kill, who walked into someone else's house, shot them in cold blood, and hit them with a whoopsie. Here's what I'm saying. I (laughs) I believe he opened the door. I believe she went to his door. I believe he opened the door. That's why his door was open. I believe she shot him because she was confronting him, and things went wrong. That's Donna's belief, and unless I have a better story, I'm sticking with that one. But I want to talk about something else about forgiveness, because people (laughs) talk about Christian forgiveness, and it's such a good thing, and it's so wonderful. Um, It makes me think of domestic violence. Yep. A woman gets beat by a man, and he can put her in the hospital, and she's told to forgive him. God forgives. God forgives. And every time you forgive him, And you bring him back into your life and he is spared those consequences. He doesn't get better. He gets worse. And you're getting closer to God. In our society, as we keep on forgiving people who are doing harm to us and not finding systems of accountability, we are in some ways um, 
undercutting our own self-defense. We have the right to self-defense. I don't believe God wants us to be beat. I don't believe God wants us to be killed. And I don't believe God wants people who kill us um, in this way to be let off without consequences. The first thing you have to do is ask for forgiveness and somehow do something to pay for your sins. The idea that I'm crying, I'm sorry, and now I'm forgiven, and you can have a Bible and you can have a hug is offensive. And then this judge who already <laughs> made me mad. She had a bow. This judge said if she were a black woman, she would not be criticized. You're right. As if she, as a black woman, if that would have ever happened, that would have happened to a black woman. You know, I remember years ago, this was many years ago, I think I was kind of young then. And there was a woman who went to the beauty shop in Southfield and took her baby and she went inside to get her hair done and she left her child in the car. She came out hours later, cute, and her child was dead. So she drove mm. around for hours trying to figure out how to blame this on somebody and escape culpability. And she told Sheesh. the police her child had been kidnapped and the car had been taken and they finally figured out it was her. It was in Southfield at Southfield Towers or something like that. And, you know, this woman killed her child trying to be cute. She didn't mean to kill her child. She may have meant to leave her child all by herself in this car seat. I'm not saying she should not, you know, be punished. I'm saying that there was absolutely no level of compassion for a woman whose child died because she made a grievous error. Instead, people called her a toxic mother and people all over the Internet or, or I don't even know if Internet existed back then in that mm -hmm. way. But I remember people, the, 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 the talk of the town was basically that these mothers are irresponsible and they don't care about their kids. Right. A couple right. of years later, there was a woman, white woman, who um, said she had post-traumatic stress syndrome, drove her children into the river, blamed yeah, a black that. man. And that was wild. all over the news... All of a sudden, I'm watching the Today Show. This is when I stopped watching the Today Show. All of these psychologists were coming on talking about post-traumatic stress syndrome. And I'm sitting here thinking, wait a minute. Perhaps the sister who left her child in the car seat to be cute had post-traumatic stress syndrome and wanted to look good to, make, to feel better about herself. I'm not excusing child neglect. But I'm looking at the difference in how we treat a black woman versus a white woman, one being just bad to the bone and the other one, not the way that that song goes, and the other one being, <laughs> bad to the bone. <laughs> but the other one being, you know, really somebody who's forgivable and sympathetic. Well, you know, the, the thing that the thing that's really a challenge for me is that in order to believe these stories, um, you have to believe that black people are supernatural um, this is the same way as a uh, uh, what's the name of the young man with the hands up, don't shoot. That um, uh, we've lost so many people to police violence. I'm, I'm losing. Michael Brown. Michael Brown. The, the story of Michael Brown to me is another one of those Herculean feats of black uh, monstrosity. The, the, the man's story was that Michael Brown walked up to I don't know any black people who don't seize up when the police are around. Period. This man said that Michael Brown walked up to his door as a police officer, reached into the police car, grabbed him about the neck, shook him violently, reached in, grabbed his gun, began to snatch him out. And this 200-pound young boy, okay, who would have had all the leverage and all of the way to keep this door closed, the, the man who was of comparable size, just white, 
pushed him off the door, opened the door, had enough time to get out of the car, grab his own gun back, then shoot him while he was all of a sudden half a block away. Now, how did Michael Brown teleport to the guy's car, reach in the car, grab him, ring him about a little bit, and then teleport away from the car to get shot halfway down the block? What do you think we're made out of? Because it's all dehumanizing. It's all dehumanizing. I wrote something several years ago on Facebook. I wrote a post about the fact that if you just took a black male and you replaced him with a pit bull dog, you'd understand the response. If a pit bull dog is seen as being irrationally violent and unreasonably or just inhumanly, I don't know the word for it, um, strong. So that a pit bull dog, the first thing when the pit bull dog shows the first signs of violence, you have to put it down before it gets a chance to come and attack you. Right. And that's how black men are perceived. And I think also the dehumanization of black emotion a woman, yeah. a black woman is not seen as vulnerable, as needy, as worthy of sympathy. And a white woman is the epitome of sympathy. When she cries, we should cry with her. If she's sorry, it doesn't really matter what she did. And I think that that's the way we're socialized in our criminal justice system and our social systems so that we don't always speak out and really demand equal treatment. And so the judge did what she thought she should do. How many white women has she sentenced to 10 years in prison for murder? It's it's in, it's incredible that that level of systemic um, racism is internalized by us too. And so what you happens is you use it, and they'll say, um, "Well, like Philando Castell," you say, "Well, that was an Asian guy that shot Philando Castell," as if you need to be white to believe the the fallacy that black people are dangerous, right? There are black Eugene Brown was a black police officer in the city of Detroit who killed five or six people. We have a long, proud history of us killing our own. Um, do you know where the Hunt Street Station is? And crash, crash in Hunt Street? Yes. There was a black police officer there, we're talking about in the 1920s, who was known for his inhumane treatment of black um, um Suspects, And um, he was hired by the Detroit Police Department because he was known to keep black people in line. He of was course. vicious. And, but, but that's the thing. We internal, like, uh, institutional racism does not require you to be white. <laughs> it just requires you to have internalized the structures. Exactly. And the, and the belief system. <laughs> and the belief system. And so when you're going back to my, you know, analogy of the abused woman, right? What's a good woman? A good woman is obedient, meek, mild, respectful, does not trigger the anger in a person. And you have a woman thinking, if I'm just more meek and more mild and more respectful, maybe he won't hit me again. And the meeker you get, the more he hits you. The more he hits you. Right? Um, And I, I believe that there's a certain amount of that that's true of black people. What's a respectable black person? We don't show anger. We don't show emotion. We... Uh, we have this gracious way of we're so religious. <laughs> we hug people who we are, our, we, our well, brothers you and know, sons. This, 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 there's a fascination with black religiosity. So we're either sinners or we have some enormous spiritual strength. If you read Stephen King, the most 
religious, spiritual person is always going to be the old black woman, well, and the yeah. old black man. You know, it's the magic Negro, it's right? The magic they, they, Negro. Flo- they appear it. and exactly. they guide white people. And 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 so there's, you know, that the old mammy, right? Mammy was this person who may have neglected her own kids, and not had anything good for herself, but she was the wise, all loving person who loved you more than she loved herself. And that is the position we put ourselves in societally when we just rush to forgiveness. Now, I'm not saying that forgiveness is a bad thing. Forgiveness is one of the most healthy things you can do in time once you have figured out how to protect yourself from somebody. And once you have established enough distance to hold them accountable, forgiveness is healthy. So I'm not anti-forgiveness. I do believe that when you forgive somebody, you free yourself. But you cannot be unfree from somebody while you're still forgiving them and expect to be freed under their um, oppression. Under, right. Under it's, under their thumb, under their. Yeah. The, the, the thing, I'm very anti-respectability politics. Like, oh, really? I, I'm <laughs> I, 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 I stand by this. I was just talking to a, I was just talking to a young man at a school. I do not believe it is my job to appease any mainstream, any white, anybody's sensibilities. And and that goes for uh, uh, more mature black people as well. People, I, I get into so many clashes with uh, with older black men about my disrespectfulness, about me not waiting my turn or waiting in line. And they don't ever say it out loud, but I see how they, they respond to me because I'm not the typical type of black male, right? I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit more feminine um, and a little bit more aggressive at the same time. Uh, and I, and so I run into these collisions where I'm supposed, I remember one time I was explaining how I didn't go to college to, to a group of people. It was kind of mixed company. So white folks, older folks, blah, blah, blah. And this, and this older black guy comes and he pulls me to the side after we're talking. He goes, Hey, you can't tell people you didn't go to college. I was like, but I didn't. He was like, well, you know, you can't tell people that. I was like, no, no. You can't tell people what you don't want to tell people. I am an isolated incident, right? Like, I have my own experience. And so we do spend a lot of time trying to appease, trying to satiate someone else's sensibility so that they will eventually accept us. Well, you know, it's well, we got time. It, you know, this valuing a person and believing in a person based on their education level <laughs> is wild. a very Eurocentric way of looking at the world. We would have to disavow all of our ancestors. You know all what? Of None of us meant anything until the first one went to college as though going to an institution of higher learning makes us smart as if going there makes us somehow worthy of, um, of attention. So the interesting thing is in both, I can't get his name. Is it Botham Jean and Botham? Botham. Botham, Botham, Botham John. John, thank you. In Botham John and then a Tatiana in oh, uh, Fort Worth. The oh, first thing man. that comes across is, but they went to college. Yeah. And since they went to college, their deaths are a tragedy, as though going to college makes you somehow worthwhile in our society. And I just don't believe it. I think that we have got to start rejecting what other people say about us. You know, I went to... Um, the University of Michigan, and I have a lot of classmates who so go, go blue, the leaders and the best and stuff like that, as if somehow going there made me smart. I was smart before I went there, first of all, okay? I was, you know, whoever I was, if you talk to people when they knew me in high school, I was pretty much the same way. I've been unfixable all of my life. Um, <laughs> <laughs> untamable, too. But <laughs> that's a whole nother story. You know, I mean, I have been unable. People have not been able to 
um, uh, conform me into whatever they thought I should be. And especially when I was younger, I dealt with that a lot where people wanted me to be different than I am. And sometimes I wished I was different too. I wish I could be like other people. Oh my God, but, it'd be so much easier. You know, God just made me this way and I'm sorry. I, I can't, I have to be myself and the older I get, the more I embrace it. But I say that to say that I don't, and I don't see going to U of M as making me smarter than people who didn't go to college. I don't see myself going to U of M making me smarter than my grandmother who did not. Now, my grandmother did eventually go to college when she was in her 40s, but she was smart when she was in her 20s and 30s and everything. When she had her high school diploma, she went to college for a specific purpose. Um, and I'll never be as smart as my grandmother was because when my grandmother went to college, she ended up becoming a teacher and taught English, Swahili, and French. And she spoke seven languages. And my grandmother, my grandmother visited every continent. She was a world traveler and a peace and freedom activist. And I look up to this woman as somebody who all of my family does, even though people have many more degrees than her. Um, and my grandmother was not smarter than her grandmother, who couldn't read. Right. And her grandmother was not smarter than the other grandmother. You know what I'm saying? So I think that we have to be very careful how we internalize racism and white supremacy, because all of those are measures that are given in a society where this is what you have to do to prove your worth and your intelligence. And they won't treat you no better whether you got it or not. And that's the wild part. They'll treat you better in public, but you still ain't got access to the jobs and opportunities. I'm, well, I'm the wrong type of black all the time. You know, my, when I was growing up, my father, I can't say this on this, but my father used to ask me, <laughs> <laughs> what do you call a black man with a Ph.D.? <laughs> What's that? N-word. <laughs> man. He wanted me to know that no matter what I did, that I was always going to, in the eyes of some people, be that so that I would not look to those people for my uh, affirmation of who I am. My father had a lot of flaws, but what he really taught me to be was resilient and not dependent on those institutions to give me my worth. I brought it to the table. I'm not getting it from you. And I think that we need more people willing to challenge those systems and demand a place at the table, not because we did those things that you sanction, but because we have worth because we are human. And as intelligent beings, we can figure this stuff out. In my work at ECN, one of the things I'm trying to do is make sure that all these conferences I'm privileged to go to and all this learning I'm privileged to have, that I am sharing it with people in the neighborhoods who are equally intelligent but didn't have access to the opportunity to go learn this like that so that it doesn't become a thing where this organization has all of the information and the people in the community are dependent on us to know what these things mean. It's really a conversation about access. I mean, when I, when I joke about being the wrong type of black person, I was just having that conversation in, the, in, in a car at 3 o'clock this morning. And it was about, um, you know, like I advocate for the hood rats. Like, I didn't I didn't finish college. I went to community college before I dropped out of community college, right? So that's not a big drop, right? Like, you know, mm -hmm. I I am not a Christian. I do not believe in God. Like I am all the wrong types of black. And it is complicated when respectability requires you to be a Christian college graduate as a black person. Like that's like like that is your job. And if you're not Christian, you gotta be Muslim, right? Like you gotta be like a part of the nation of Islam and you gotta have like a PhD. But I have not I am fortunate that people assume that based upon the way that I communicate that I am a college graduate. Like, most people don't know it until I tell them. <laughs> people just assume that because I'm in the room with them that I have the same quote-unquote credentials as them. And, and it, it, it speaks to bias that you believe that your validation from an institution 
is a direct line to your intellect. <laughs> there are, like, we have griots in our community who That's are right. the keepers of our stories. That's they right. don't need to be validated by a historical institution uh, to be a person who knows where we come from. Where did Donald Trump go to college? Uh University of Pennsylvania. He went Ivy League, right? He went Ivy League. Isn't that evidence of something? Where did George it's Bush like, go It's to like college? Warden. <laughs> yeah, he, I mean, you know, the reality is you have plenty of people who are educated fools, and you have plenty <laughs> Don't of people. We? And that's not to d- deny education. Like, I value education. I tell kids to go to college I, I feel every time very I blessed to, to have received a good education at the same time. Uh, my father used to tell me something else, and that was the job of a school is to teach you how to learn. That if you learn how to learn and you become a lifelong learner, it doesn't matter what anybody does. So you look at somebody like LeBron James, who also didn't go to college and who was a particular hero of mine until this, you know, <laughs> oh, Hong Kong thing. He's got to work his way out of that. But I mean, this is a man who's so intelligent, who is so successful, not just as an athlete, but as a businessman who didn't go to college. And you have people who went to college and have all kinds of degrees next to their name who wish they could do what he's doing with his life. And it's an example and just evidence that you don't need other people to show you how to learn. Information is information. If you read a book, then you learn it. If you talk to somebody or you find out about something, you understand it. Look at Abraham Lincoln, who never went to a single, he did not just not go to college, he didn't go to school. He lived in a log cabin, taught himself to read. He became an attorney reading law books and then passed the the exam and did the apprenticeship necessary to become an attorney. Whatever you think about Abraham Lincoln, he was a brilliant writer, a brilliant, had a brilliant gift of oratory and writing. And he never went to anybody's school. And in those days when he was on the path to the presidency, people looked at him as being subpar. The elites and the well-educated looked at him as being less than them. And yet he was president. It's 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 always interesting when you – I ask people this all the time. What is a college degree for but to provide validation for you? So who is the person that gives that institution the right to validate you and your value. The first person who created a college didn't have a college degree. That's just the facts. Right? Well, but it's more than just validation. You do learn important things. And True. some people, I do believe that there is a lot of essential learning. And especially for certain things, I want my doctor to have a medical degree. I want my lawyer to have a law degree, although there are some people who fake it and make it. I know there's somebody who is operating on people without a medical <laughs> True, degree. True, that just happened. But, but you know... By the way, please make sure you have one if you're going to touch me, okay? I I just think people, I think, so when I talk to kids about going to college, this is what I always tell them as a person who didn't go to college. If you're going to go to college, I'm going to use you for tuition, use them for resources. There were so many things that colleges give you access to, whether that's studying abroad programs, whether that's getting around people who have the same interests as you. You know, there's a concentration of focus and intellect in one place who are encumbered by kind of the distractions of the world. You know, you're able to go and discover yourself at college. And so if you're going to go to college, go to college for its reason. But if you're going to go to college for the degree, right? If you're just going to college for the degree, you're about to waste your college experience. Well, it depends on what kind of degree. Again, if you want to be a nurse, you need a nursing degree. True. If you want to be a computer science, you're going to need that kind of degree. Maybe. So, well. Maybe. Maybe on the computer science. Well, depending (laughs) on what type of computer engineering you're doing, you may need it. You're right. There are some people. Even Google doesn't check for degrees anymore. You're you're right. But there are certain (laughs) jobs that you must have it and certain A doctor should have a a degree. I agree. I, I think that here's the thing. 
Um, I don't think that you should be, I'm not an, a snob who believes that going to college is, is what you know. And a, a, a college career is a way of systematizing the transfer of knowledge. Exactly. And so if you don't have the self-discipline, and a lot of people don't, to teach yourself and to learn on your own, you're going to need to be in a structured setting where you can learn. So I think the school is optimal for those reasons. But I think that if you are a person who has a high degree of drive and self-discipline, you don't necessarily need a school in order to get what you need. Um, I think that people who don't benefit from some type of organized effort to teach them are probably less common than people who do. True. And, and I so, will say, as somebody who went the route without college, it's a harder route. Like, it's not an easy. I, I hate when people say, oh, we'll get Bill Gates and then go to college, and Eric's not going to college, blah, blah, blah. Like, this is a harder way to go. Yeah. And <laughs> that's what I'm saying. It definitely is harder so to I, not go. <laughs> I advocate college, but what I don't advocate is believing that going to college makes you better than other people. True. I don't believe that having a good job makes you better than other people. I don't believe that having money yeah, makes you better than people other people. Jobs. And the problem with respectability politics is that the need to be better than other people. I believe that our village is strong when all people are equally valued and it's hard as hell to do that um we all strive to value people equally god loves us all. i do believe in god yeah i'm, um, the, I'm the only one and, in detroit well you're not the only <laughs> one in detroit you should meet my mother she you and my mother would get along really well. i was actually raised in an atheist household really life. yes it's, i have a very interesting black there, path there's so yeah. there's so few of us i always yeah. joke that i'm the last black atheist well, like it's like it's, well, i was I'm, like, always alone we had a bible but my bible was purely decorative and when i was reading the bible my parents would laugh oh look at donna she loves to read it was always I was always an object of um, of humor for them. But at the same time, I have such a strong spiritual element. I do believe that there is a spiritual force that is much greater than anything than, than we can explain. And there's so many things, and we don't have time for that. I'm going to have a spiritual discussion with you next well, time. We'll have a good time. That'll be but, a good one. But, but you know, I, I think that um, the reality is that I believe that um, in, in God, I don't know that my Christian beliefs conform to those of many other people. I believe in Jesus in the New Testament, and I know that there are a lot of people who have not really uh, moved much beyond the Old Testament, so there's a lot of punishment (laughs) and, you know, rebuking God, angry God, and I believe in a loving God and a forgiving God, and I believe in all of those things even despite our conversation about forgiveness. Old Testament God I do want to get to, before we go, though, one of the things we want to talk about in terms of forgiveness, real quickly, is this whole idea of forgiveness being something where we're forgiving somebody for murder. <laughs> but you have somebody, there was an article in the paper today about a water program where people who don't pay their water bills um, are um, having their water shut off. What about debt forgiveness for poor folks? How come forgiveness always seems to <laughs> flow in the direction of the privileged and not people who are in most in need of compassion and a forgiving heart? Oh yeah, I mean it. All, it, it always flows up, right? It's right. it's the job of the oppressed to forgive the oppressor, because you need that to survive the oppression that's coming. Right? Somebody who's oppressing you, like a lion, doesn't have to forgive a gazelle. <laughs> you know, you're just taking over. I would like to see a lot more forgiveness take place in the city of Detroit. I would like to see a lot more compassion, a lot more awareness, and a lot more effort to understand the. Um, the the real fragile souls of so many people here because of the 
lifetime of trauma in their lives and the lives before them and the lives before them. Sometimes it's understandable why people do certain things. It's a lot more understandable to me why certain people engage in self-destructive behavior when they've been raised in traumatic environments than why Amber Geiger walked into a man's apartment <laughs> eating ice cream and killed him. <laughs> um, so if we're going to forgive, let's start with forgiving people who need it the most. Who need Children in foster care who would, you know, move into adults who've never been loved, never been given the kinds of things that every child deserves and needs um, deserve a level of forgiveness. And our society is pretty unforgiving school policies. We have zero tolerance policies because we need to teach children the way it is. And, um, you know, <laughs> which isn't you, true. Well, it's not the way it is if you have the right type of access. But it is for those kids. And they for learn sure. from a very young age. Um, I, I, I used to manage schools and this one kid pulled a red shiny object, the fire alarm. He was in kindergarten and the principal moved to expel him Sheesh. and wanted to teach him a lesson and set a standard. And what standard is, are we teaching these kids but non-forgiveness? I wish that we lived in a world that extended the same level of compassion and forgiveness for our children that we do for these adults who misbehave, especially when they are misbehaving from a perspective of privilege. I mean, it's like when I go into these schools and there, you know, there's metal detectors everywhere. It's like you're criminalizing these kids and teaching them what it's like to go into this system before they even know it, right? They're, they are now prepared to be patted down every day. It's because they're all every single one of them is a threat. But when the suburban kids are shooting up schools now, all of a sudden, it's 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 a tragedy now that those it's kids a have to go through. It's a it's, it's sad. It's, it's really sad. It's really and they're sad. having these drills, and they have to worry about their safety, and that's that's tragic. Our kids are patted down every day. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Adults shoot. I <laughs> I get patted down every time I go into school. I'm like, Jesus. Right. So uh, I really, really, really want to thank you for coming on today. I knew it would be fun. I always enjoy <laughs> talking to you, Eric. You are, um, if nothing else, somebody who stimulates new thought. Oh, um, thank if, you very much. Um, if you. <laughs> have questions or topics you want discussed on Authentically Detroit, you can hit us up on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Authentically Detroit or email us at AuthenticallyDetroit at gmail.com. Um, in, in closing, do you have anybody you want to shout out right now? Anybody you want to just thank for um, good service or things they've done? Oh, I've got I've got two. All right, so mm-hmm. you've got... See, I was listening to podcasts, so I knew I was going to have to have my shout outs ready. Um, <laughs> so, I, you know... Nate Wallace and Carissa, now Wallace, formerly Carissa Holmes, got married in Spain and took every uh, black person with authority in Detroit with them, except for Donna. Uh, <laughs> the only executive director that wasn't in Spain this weekend. Um, really, really incredible. You just dripped out uh, Spain with black excellence. It really was exciting. And the, we were talking about um, forgiveness for water, right? So Miko. Uh, Williams, the Detroit Water Brigade, and that work that he's been doing, he's been fighting. I mean, the young man has interesting tactics, but you can't say that he's not passionate. <laughs> yeah, listen, he, and, and by the way, if you want to support um, the Detroit Water Brigade, Brigade, you can go to Kroger and like them as a community partner, and a portion of everything you spend will go to the Detroit Water Brigade, which is helping keep people's water on. Hats off to Miko, and thank Hats you off for, to Miko. Uh, for mentioning him. He is interesting at the same time. You know, he brings it real, and he's about as authentic as you can get in the city of Detroit. You always know when Miko's in the room because um, yeah. he's recording it. <laughs> and he's about to be dragged out And of he it. is about to be dragged out, or he has just got so much commentary. Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> so, Miko, if you're, here, if you're listening, I want to shout out um, um, Kat Stafford for yeah. um, her investigative reporting. Um, 
She is a young sister who just does the job and really helped break this story. And it's got to be scary and threatening as a young black woman to take on an administration that is as closely protected as this one. Oh, yeah. So she's a young woman I admire. Strong um, woman. Yes. I want to shout out um, Senator Stephanie Chang, the oh. Detroit People's Platform, the Michigan Environment Health, Health Council, and ECN for our work in trying to get a petition to demand that Fiat Chrysler protects our air quality in the city of Detroit. Mm. Um, we're working together. This is the first time we have all come together around the same table, but air is... Um, we all breathe the same air, right? Yeah, and either right. we're going to fix it and make sure that we're breathing healthy air or we're going to let some people get sick. Um, and then I also want to um, to um, shout out Senator Chang for and um, Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib for the um, housing conference they're having this Saturday. Mm. It's going to be on housing justice, a lot of great speakers discussing a lot of topics that we all need to be um, discussing so that we can understand how to live in a more just society where everybody has a place to live, which is, in my opinion, as much a human right as water, a place to live in water and something to eat and medical care. These are all human rights. And too many people in our community in the city of Detroit are going without them. And I'm going to stand with Eric and hate the systems that deprive people of these things until we decide to fix them. So we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening.